Thank you for this, this word this morning. Um, God, there is an element of wilderness to our life together as a, as a body. And uh, as we reflect on Israel's wandering in the wilderness, Lord, um, we trust that you are present with us, that you are leading us by your Holy Spirit, that even though uh, the future is not uh, certain for us, God, um, we know, God, that, that even though we don't know, you do. And so, Father, we entrust our future to your care. We ask, Father, that your, um, the hope of your, your presence, your spirit, will be upon us, that we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that, Lord, as we look into this word this morning, that we would see Christ, that we would see him for us, that we would see him loving us, sacrificing himself for us, giving himself to us, Lord. And that in the midst of that, that incredible grace that Jesus has shown us, um, God, that we would respond in faith, that we would respond with open hands, that we would respond knowing that you are ours and we are yours. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, looking in, in Exodus 16, I want to start by talking about God's gracious provision. I want to talk about God's gracious provision. Israel at this point in time was wandering in the wilderness, and, and they were kind of outside the normal bounds of God's common grace. And, and common grace is, is the, the kind of grace that God gives to everyone. Grace is God's love that we don't deserve, and, and the fact that it's common means that it's available to everyone whether they worship him or not, whether they believe in him or not, whether they, they obey him or not. God gives his love to all people everywhere uh, through his common grace. Jesus describes that in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. He tells us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's God's common grace. It's, it's, a, it's a grace that's available to all people at all times and places. And, and for example, have you ever considered how to make bread? Like what, what goes into making bread? I've had the opportunity to... Um, learn to make homemade sourdough and there's something like almost miraculous about bread making you just take like four ingredients you take flour and water and salt and yeast and you put them together and you knead it together you make it into a dough you put it in the oven and out comes the best thing you will eat all day it's just it's it's just an amazing thing that 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 you can go like when, when I, the way that i get my yeast is i put a, a cup of water and flour on my counter for a week and it, and it bubbles up with yeast, and then I use that to, to make my bread. Like, God's abundance, God's provision, God's love is available to all of us in creation, just embedded in the world as he's made it. And, and I think oftentimes we assume that the world is just supposed to work a certain way, and we usually buy our bread in bags already sliced for us. And so we don't get to delight in the wonder of the world that God's made. We don't get to delight in the fact that God has embedded in creation these incredible, beautiful, glorious things for us to discover and enjoy. These life-sustaining things 
that are simple yet beautiful. Israel, at this point in time, has actually stepped outside of God's common grace in a way. They were in Egypt, and now they're, they're in the wilderness. They were um, in a place where they could enjoy uh, the, the normal means of God's provision for them. But, but now, there, there are no farms in the wilderness. There are no places to, to raise or grow crops. There's no places to harvest crops. There's no places uh, to, to take care of their own basic daily needs. They've been thrown completely and totally upon the mercy of God. They're utterly in God's hands. And when they don't have the opportunity to provide for themselves through the normal, average, everyday means of common grace, how do they respond? They complain. They groan. They grumble. Look again at at verses 2 and 3. Of chapter 16. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died! Not dramatic or anything. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. If you remember, we looked at Exodus 14 last week, and in verses 11 and 12 of of that passage, Israel standing on the edge of the Red Sea, and they yell at Moses, Did you lead us out into the wilderness because there weren't enough graves back in Egypt for us? Did you bring us out here to kill us all just so that we could be buried out in the desert? And then God miraculously brings them through the Red Sea, builds a wall of water on either side of them as they pass through dry ground, destroys the entire Egyptian army in their wake. They get to the other side. They sing a song of praise in Exodus 15, and then Exodus 16 opens up, and it's complaining again. If only we had died back in Egypt. How many of us When we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have the the provision we expect, where we don't have the things we think we deserve from the world, from creation, how many of us turn almost immediately to complaints, to grumbling? I wish that I could say I don't identify with Israel in, in, in their grumbling, but I do. But the, the, the incredible thing about what, what Moses and Aaron say in response to Israel's complaining is that they, they direct their eyes not at their circumstances, not at themselves. Because the, all the people, remember, are complaining against Moses and Aaron. They're all mad at Moses. They think it's all Moses' fault. If Moses hadn't done this, if Moses hadn't defied Pharaoh, if Moses hadn't parted the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness, then they wouldn't be suffering. Then they wouldn't be hungry. Then they wouldn't be afraid of starving and watching their children starve. They think it's all Moses' fault. And what does Moses say in response? Verses uh, 6 through 8 say this. Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. 
because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And again, Moses said in verse 8, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. What Moses is doing in that moment is he's, he's pointing them back to the, 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 the typical, everyday, gracious provision of God for all people everywhere. He's reminding them of the fact that their circumstances are not manufactured by himself, not manufactured by them, not the fault of Pharaoh, not the fault of the wilderness. The circumstances that Israel finds themselves in at that moment in time come back to the, the plan of God for them. Comes back to God lovingly pursuing them and delivering them. Comes back to God bringing them to a place where they are in desperate need of his provision. They complain against Moses. They complain against their circumstances. But he says, Moses says that all of their complaining is against the Lord. And that's not just true for Israel. That's true for us as well. Every time we grumble, every time we complain, when we sit in traffic and get really frustrated because we're late for a meeting, when the kid won't nap, when the diaper smells especially bad. Every time we grumble, every time we complain, our grumbling isn't against our circumstances. It's not against the person we see in front of us. Our grumbling is against the Lord. Because the Bible teaches us that that God is a sovereign God, that he is over all things, that he cares for his people, and he doesn't do anything by accident in our lives. He doesn't allow anything to happen to us by accident. He leads us and guides us and cares for us in all circumstances. He is over nature. He is over our lives. He is over all. And when we don't glorify him, when we don't see him as the one who gives us our daily bread as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, We don't recognize that it's God's provision, not our work, that gives us the food we eat and the shelter we enjoy. Our complaining is against the Lord. I wish that I could say that I was uh, devoid of all complaining, that somehow I had risen above in in holiness and obedience, the, the act of grumbling. But... I, uh, I still struggle with this in a big way. And I think, you know, through this whole circumstance of, of our church losing our building and, and, and looking uh, to the future and trying to find a new place to worship, somehow, in the midst of all that, I'm able to make it about me and my, and, and my, uh, my relationship with God. Somehow it's about God not loving me, not, not really being good to me. Never mind all of you, I don't know. Um, I'm just very selfish and self-centered at the end of the day. My heart is broken and bent by sin, and I'm turned in on myself, and I look at myself before I look at the world, but I look at myself before I look at God. And my temptation through this circumstance is, is to complain, is to be bitter, is to grumble, is to shake my fist at heaven. If you're here today and you 
maybe you're back to church for the first time in a long time, or, or maybe you've never been a part of a church in any significant way. I want you to, I want you to hear me, you know, not doing public confession or, or therapy time, but just being honest and admitting the fact that this is a, a constant sin in my life. And I just want to say, like, our church is not a, a temple for perfect individuals, where we all get together and pat each other on the back and say, good job for being holy. Our church is not a, a temple for, for perfect people. Our church is a hospital for the broken. And Jesus says that, that when we're broken and contrite in our spirit, that's the kind of offering, that's the kind of sacrifice, that's the kind of posture we, we, we ought to have before God, and that God promises to meet us in that with his love. And so I just want to invite you, if you're broken, if you're a mess, if you see your need for for God's love in your life, then this is a place for you. It's a place for me too. What about the rest of us? Do we find ourselves complaining? Do we find ourselves grumbling about our circumstances? What does our complaining and grumbling say about what we believe? Why is it that we, that we believe? Why, why is it that we, we complain and grumble in the ways that we do? Is it because we don't believe that God is over us? Is it because we're tempted to doubt his goodness? Is it because we're tempted to believe that we're the center of the universe and that it's all God's fault? When we see that in ourselves, when we see that complaining, bitter heart growing up inside of us, we're invited by God to admit that, to be just honest about it, we're invited to repent, to turn away from that. We're invited to, to just come to him in prayer. My favorite prayer in the Bible is Mark 9, 24, where the man says to Jesus, who has offered to, to heal his daughter, he says, to the man, he says to the Lord, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a constant prayer in my own prayer life because I have a lot of unbelief in my life. And God is constantly bringing me to the end of myself so that I get to that place where I can say, I believe, but I don't always trust you. I believe, but I'm still complaining in my heart. Help my unbelief. God sees the grumbling of his people, but notice that like, the people don't pray. The people don't go to God and say, Lord, please help us. No, they go to Moses and say, you did this. It's all your fault. And yet God still graciously provides for his people. God still graciously provides. They don't deserve God's provision. They probably deserve God to like go somewhere else. I'm going to leave you behind now. But he doesn't. Verse 4, right after they've complained, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Then in verse 12, he provides it. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Not the prayer, not the faithfulness of the people of Israel, the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God hears the grumbling of his people and still gives them grace. 
God hears the complaining and faithlessness of his people and still pursues them. And God doesn't just, you know, give them barely enough to survive. He doesn't tell them, hey, there's a, a berry patch over the hill, just go there and, and pick berries till you're, till you're sore and, and then you'll have enough. God says, I will rain bread. I will pour out my abundance upon you. I will show myself gracious and faithful to you. And Psalm 78 is kind of a, a song in Israel about all the ways that God had poured out his grace upon Israel throughout history. And about this, this particular scene, it says there in verses 23 through 25, that God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. They were thrown entirely upon the mercy of God in the wilderness. They did not trust God in the midst of the wilderness. And yet God rained down provision upon them. And they ate the bread of angels. God is a gracious God who doesn't just give barely enough. He fills us to the full. So what needs do you have in your life right now? Where do you feel you lack God's provision? Where do you feel you lack his care? Do you believe that God is a generous God? Do you believe that God loves you and is with you? Or are you tempted to complain? Are you tempted to grumble and bitterness? I think sometimes we're tempted to believe that God is a stingy God, but we don't worship a Scrooge up in the heavens. There's no Ebenezer Scrooge looking down on us. We serve a generous God who lives in abundance, who loves us in, 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 in an overflowing measure of grace. Later on in the, in the chapter, in verses 17 and 18, God tells the people to go and gather enough for themselves to eat each day. And then it says that, that it didn't matter how much they gathered. They would go in, they would find the bread, the manna on the ground, they would gather it in, and at the end of the day, everyone had the same amount. Everyone had exactly what they needed. And so you could have the, the, the strong, strapping man, you know, gathering as much as he could possibly gather, and, and the hunchbacked old woman gathering as much as she could gather. And when you put the containers next to one another, they measured to be exactly the same. Because in God's economy, he doesn't reward us based on our strength and ability. In God's economy, he pours out his love and mercy equally upon all. The ground is level at the foot of the cross of Christ. There is no hierarchy among the people of God. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, all equal before the eyes of God. And no, materially, materially in this world, he doesn't deal with us all equally. Some of us may have more than others. Some of us may uh, have, have greater gifts than others in the church. Some of us may have more faith than others. But before God, he sees us all as his dearly loved children, and he doesn't show favoritism. In God's economy, he pours out his blessings upon us all. 
And it's because God is so generous, so abundant in his love and grace that we, in turn, seek to be a people who give and are generous towards others. Because God has been so abundantly generous to us, we don't respond with stinginess. We don't respond with greed or hoarding. We respond with openness and generosity. We let God's gracious provision lead us into lives that, that, that give more than we sometimes think we have, but we can give more than we think we have because God is with us and above us and over us and loving us and giving us all that we need. A stingy Christian is an ugly thing. A stingy Christian is an ugly thing because a stingy Christian represents a stingy God. If we are stingy in the way that we love others, if we're stingy in the way that we give to others, if we're stingy, then we represent God as stingy. Part of being made in God's image and redeemed into the image of Christ and being conformed into the image of Christ is that we represent Christ with our actions, with our obedience, with our lives. And if we walk in stinginess, we are showing the world that God is a stingy God. I've met a lot of stingy Christians in recent weeks as I've sought a building for our church to worship in. And I don't say that to condemn anyone. I just say it as the honest, plain truth. I don't say that to condemn anyone because I have been a stingy Christian. And the fact is that the only way that I can break through my stinginess, the, the, the self-centeredness of my own heart, into the generosity of the kingdom of God is if I repent. As if I believe again in the generous love that God has poured out upon me in Christ. I ask for His forgiveness and, and, and the power of His Spirit to, to give and to love and to serve more than I think I have. Because in Christ, all things are mine. And I belong to Him and Christ himself belongs to God. We do not serve a miserly God, and may we never be a miserly church. Jesus said in, in Acts 20, verse 35, that it is more blessed to give than receive. He said in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, that we should store up for ourselves not treasures in earth where moth and rust destroy, but what we should store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Because where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. If our treasure is on earth, if we love material things, if we love ourselves, then that's where our treasure is. And if that's where our treasure is, do we really belong to Him? Are we really walking with Him? Are we really loving and serving and honoring and glorifying Him? Scripture teaches us that we can only keep what we give away. That in, the, in view of eternity, we can only keep what we give away. That's how we store up treasures in heaven. Is it by having open hands before God and saying, Lord, who would you have me bless? Who would you have me love? Who would you have me serve? Who would you have me give to? That's the way that God teaches us we can keep the things that he gives us. I say all of this because I expect the season that we're entering into as a church to be uncomfortable. 
I expect we will all suffer discomfort in some way or another. And I expect that if, that if Grace Alameda is going to continue to survive and preach the gospel of Jesus in a place that desperately needs it, we will all have to give and serve sacrificially. I believe that God will graciously provide for our church. And when he does, we have to ask ourselves not how are we going to get through this, but what are we going to do when God provides? Because when God provides, we should be, be, be ready to give. We should be ready to be generous as, we, as he has been generous to us. I believe that this season is an opportunity for us to grow in faith and trust in God. It's an opportunity for us to grow in mission, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to thousands of people around us who do not know him. And I believe it's an opportunity for us to recognize that God's gracious provision to us is not ultimate. That his common grace to feed us and clothe us and give us warm shelter, those things are good and a blessing from God, but they are not ultimate. The material possessions we own are not ultimate. It's not God's gracious provision that's ultimate. It's God's provision of grace that we look to as his people. It's God's provision of grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses, 40 years after this scene in Exodus 16, tells the people, reminds them in a sermon, what the manna was all about. He says there, he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the way that God related to his people, the manna wasn't just about giving them the food that they needed. God brought them through the wilderness to humble them. God allowed them to suffer hunger pangs in their stomachs, to bring them to their knees. And then in God's provision, he showed them that, that we don't live by, by the bread that comes from the work of our hands. We live as the people of God through, through the, the gracious provision of our Father. That the goal of manna wasn't food, the goal of manna was relationship with God himself. Was God giving himself to his people. We so readily forget and ignore that God is constantly giving us his gracious provision. We so constantly forget that the work of our hands isn't ultimately what feeds us, but it's God's gracious provision. But so much more than that. So much more than that. God wants us to look not to the food, not to the shelter, not to the clothing, not to the things we have, but he wants us to see those as, as his provision, his grace, and he wants those to be catalysts, almost sacraments, of, of his constant and consistently faithful love to us. That when we, when we take a bite of a sandwich or a hamburger or, or when, we, when we butter our toast in the morning or when we enjoy a, a delicious rich pastry, whenever we enjoy bread that, that's so abundant and beautiful and, and delicious, 
that God wants us not to enjoy just the bread itself and see it as an end in itself, but as a, as a way for us to relate to Him and praise Him for providing everything that we need. That when I pray, I know when God provides us with a building, regardless of how comfortable it is or how, how ideal it is for us, when God does provide us with a new space to worship in, that that will be a place where God's name will be proclaimed, where God's name will be glorified, and it'll be an opportunity for us to enjoy and to embrace His gracious provision to us and never again take for granted any building that we live in. How many of us assume shelter? How many of us assume that there's going to be a place to worship on Sunday? None of us can assume that right now. But the beautiful thing about it is that God is taking us through the wilderness to remind us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that verse might be familiar to you if you know the gospel narratives well. You might remember that Jesus himself quoted that verse to Satan when Satan told Jesus to turn the stones in the desert into bread. And Jesus said, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, I will not put my trust in material things or material power. I put my trust in the Lord. My relationship with God is better, is more than my ability to provide for myself. And in John chapter 6, Jesus makes it clear that when, when Moses said, we live not by bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus made it clear in John chapter 6 that the word that comes from the mouth of God is Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 6, Jesus had just provided uh, 5,000 people with bread, miraculously. And they come looking for Him the next day, saying, Jesus, Jesus, give us, give us lunch. We're hungry. Feed us. Provide for our material needs. And Jesus says this to them in John 6, 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They responded and said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We look for our provision. We look for our life and the material things of this world. But Jesus says your life does not come through the food that you eat or the work that you do. Jesus says he is the bread of life. He knows that all of us as human beings with broken hearts have deep hungers, longings, desires, and He has given us those hungers, those longings, those desires, not so that we can fill them with idols, not so we can fill them with work or success or power or money or family or sex or anything. God has given us these desires in our hearts because our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in Christ. That until we eat Christ, until we receive Him by faith, 
and, and say that He is our life, we will never have life. That until we believe that He is the only one who can provide for us, then the material world that we long to, to fill our hearts with will never satisfy. The things of this world cannot fill the human heart because we were made for greater and better things. We were not made to rely on this world for our lives. We were made to have our longings and our desires filled with the person of Jesus himself, God in the flesh coming to us in his abundant love. Christ is the fulfillment of every human desire, the joy of every longing heart. God isn't just a gracious provider. He's a provider of grace. God gives us His Son and invites us not to, not to have full bellies, but to have full hearts, full souls, full lives. Jesus goes on in John 6 and says this in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, the people there, there that day didn't understand. Jesus is standing there before them, and they, they thought maybe he was inviting them into cannibalism. But we who by faith trust in Christ and know that he died and rose for us, who know the story of the Last Supper where he broke the bread and said, this is my body, where he poured the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You and I who can look back at the full story of what Christ did for us and prepare in a few moments to take the bread and the cup and commune with him by faith we can look back and know what Jesus was talking about here and the promise of life to us. And not only the promise of life, but for us in this season, as we walk through the wilderness of finding a building, remember what he says in verse 56, that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Abides in me means we live in him, means Christ is our home, our rock, our refuge. Wherever we land next as a church, God's calling us to remember that Christ Jesus came down from heaven, that Christ gave up his home. He incarnated, God himself became incarnate as a homeless man, an itinerant preacher who didn't have a place to lay his head at night. That God became homeless for our sake. And the Holy Spirit is leading us in this season, not for our comfort, but for the mission of Christ 
for the mission of proclaiming him to those who do not yet have life in him. As I've gone from one side of this island to the other, scouring every building that we could possibly fit in, I've become convinced more and more and more that Alameda needs our church. Not because we're so great, not because we're holier than anybody else or or necessarily more faithful than anyone else, but because God is doing something unique in our church body that he's not doing any place else in Alameda. God wants Grace Alameda to be here. God has, has called us here, not for ourselves, not for our own comfort, not for our own community, as much as as those are great blessings to us. But God has placed us in Alameda to be salt and light. God has placed us in Alameda to tell the thousands of people around us who don't know the name of Christ or or, or could, could not possibly imagine worshiping Christ to make it plausible. To, to, to make it real, to, to make Jesus live before them in our words and in our deeds. Alameda needs us. Not because of us, but because of Christ's work in and through us. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, let's remember that as we feed on Christ, that that he sacrificed himself for us, that God has graciously provided his grace to us. He's given us his grace in this meal and in the Lord with whom we commune in this meal. This morning we have the opportunity to receive his grace again by faith and we can respond to his call to offer his grace to others. We get to receive his grace, receive his blessings, and in turn, give his grace, give his blessings to others. We get to remember the the great generosity of our God and respond in kind with generosity of heart, with love, with worship to him, and, and, and with sharing our lives and ourselves and our church with all of our neighbors around. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you this morning because you are a faithful and generous God. Lord, we we do not deserve anything we've received from you. And yet despite that, you have so generously, so abundantly provided for us most perfectly in your Son, Jesus. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. May we not look to our circumstances. May we not look to the human factors that have brought us to this season. But God, may we look to Christ and Christ alone. May we be led by your Holy Spirit through this wilderness. Would you please, Father, provide for us. May we not complain and let you respond to us, God, but may we pray and seek you and and trust that you will respond. Father, I believe, help my unbelief, help our unbelief as a church. And may we rejoice when you do provide. And and may may your provision lead us to, to get about your mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus everywhere we go. It's in his good and gracious name we pray.